This episode of Literary Treks is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your desktop or mobile device. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hey everyone, I'm Rod Roddenberry, and you're listening to Trek FM. some light reading in case I got bored. Welcome everyone to another episode of Literary Treks, our books and comics show here on the network. And with me, as he is always, is Dan Gunther. Dan, uh, how are you doing today? I'm not doing too badly. Uh, Kind of crazy busy day at work, but happy to be sitting down here to talk about Star Trek. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. Uh, I completely understand. It's it's been a kind of a awkward, weird day for me at work as well. So it's it's nice to be away from that and got a vacation coming up too. But don't worry, everyone. That's not going to hinder a literary tracks coming from you. Dan and I have worked ourselves a little uh, a little extra uh, time, and so um, you will not miss any literary tracks coming to you and. Great thing is, Dan, is that we've had some great news coming out of Dayton Ward these days. Definitely. That guy is just a like a news proliferator. <laughs> Absolutely. No, lots of great news uh, coming from Dayton. Uh, first of all, uh, obviously, this gorgeous, gorgeous cover we've gotten for his novel coming out uh, in just a few months, uh, Armageddon's Arrow, his new next generation novel. And you know what that means. It's time to judge a book by its cover. I'm going to judge the book <laughs> by its cover. Yeah, I went a little 80s like uh, hair band there for you guys. I'm flashing oh back my to gosh. my childhood there, Matthew. Ooh, yeah. <laughs> Ow! It is a beautiful cover. Um, I I am very, very happy with this. I would say I'm more than sufficiently excited by this cover with this massive alien ship on there. You got the great, beautiful Enterprise E plus a Voyager style shuttlecraft. Mm-hmm. So uh, apparently the Enterprise E has stocked a few of those Voyagers type shuttlecrafts. Definitely. This is, I, I, honestly think this is one of the most beautiful covers I've seen in a long time for Star Trek. I was trying to think of something more than sufficiently excited. Um, enormously excited? I, I don't know. This is incredible. I love it. Very beautiful. Well, what's the what's the blurb, Dan? What's going to be happening in this novel here with the Enterprise? Because as we've been told, we're definitely going to get some serious exploring. Okay, well, according to the blurb, it is a new age of exploration, and the USS Enterprise is dispatched to the Odyssean past. Sorry. <clears throat> 
and the USS Enterprise is dispatched to the Odyssean Pass, a region charted only by unmanned probes and believed to contain numerous inhabited worlds. Approaching a star system with two such planets, Captain Jean-Luc Picard and his crew find a massive alien vessel drifting in interstellar space for decades. Sensors detect life aboard the derelict, aliens held in suspended animation. Thought to be an immense sleeper ship, the vessel is actually a weapon capable of destroying entire worlds, the final gambit in a war that has raged for generations across the nearby system. Now caught in the middle of this conflict, Captain Picard attempts to mediate, as both sides want this doomsday weapon, which was sent from the future with the sole purpose of ending the interplanetary war before it began. Pretty exciting stuff. (laughs) Yeah, that does definitely sound exciting. Uh, this is going to be coming to us uh, May 26th uh, in mass market paperback. Of course, you may be able to find that uh, sooner than that if you've got your local retail bookseller that's uh, got it out early. It will only drop on ebook on the 26th, so I'm very excited to be uh, picking this up soon and Great to see what's happening with the Enterprise after their um, huge adventure with Takedown. And, of course, uh, having Beverly back as well. So that's really exciting. Definitely. I'm, I'm really happy to see this, uh, that they're really following through with this whole uh, switching gears back to exploration thing. I'm really excited to see where this goes. Yeah, me too. Um, you know, I think we it's, it's long needed, so I'm very glad that's going to be happening. Well, next in news, we have another book that's going to be coming out. A, It looks like it's going to be a small nonfiction book, uh, maybe something you might find uh, close to the register, like a Barnes & Noble or something like that. Uh, and Rob Perlman, who cracked fans up with their, his recent book, Fun with Kirk and Spock, has been writing something a little bit different. And uh, this time it's going to be Wit and Wisdom of Star Trek. Uh, I'm excited to see this come out and uh, see what he's collected and what he thinks might be, you know, what is the most wise words from hopefully like Spock and Kirk and, you know, McCoy, all those guys. So that should be a lot of fun. Definitely. And I mean, um, fun with Kirk and Spock was just a riot. I thought it was great. So I'm I'm glad to see more coming from uh, Rob Perlman here. Yeah, definitely. I think it'll be a lot of fun. Um, I'm excited that uh, they're continuing on doing these these smaller books and these nonfiction books that make for great gifts for uh, you know people out there to to pick up for their their Star Trek fan, their resident Star Trek fan. And uh, there's nothing like having this kind of book around, you know, just to. You always want to remember that quote, you know, that seemed like somewhat smart from Star Trek. <laughs> and you're like, oh, man, I'm going to have to go watch the episode or I'm going to have to go search on the Internet. Having this kind of thing around would be great because uh, then you have it right there at your fingertips. And hopefully you can just, you know, flip to the right page. So I think that'll be great. Facebook status updates and tweets for months. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Um, well, last thing in news, which I think is really, really exciting, Dan is Dayton gave us some more spectacular news. I don't know. What did you think about from history's shadow? What was your opinion? Well, I'm not going to lie, Matthew. That was one of my absolute favorite novels to come out that year. And notice that I didn't say Star Trek novels. That was one of my favorite novels to come out that year. I loved from history's shadow. Yeah, I agree with you. One, it was a blast that Dayton got a chance to pull off a book like that. Um, You know, I think a lot like uh, the... Temporal Investigations book, it was a really, really exciting, exciting story, you know, and it came a kind of out of nowhere. It just kind of hits you from left field, and it was 
I think broadening our horizons of what it could mean to write a Star Trek book. Mm-hmm. And that's really exciting. So I'm glad that Dayton's getting an opportunity to give us more UFOs, more aliens, and as he says, more time travel shenanigans. <laughs> exactly. And that first novel, like you said, was just so different from your typical Trek novel. I'm really excited to see where he goes next with this. We're not certain exactly when it will be released, but presumably it'll be sometime in 2016. So just in time for Star Trek's 50th anniversary. Yeah. And, and what's great is that um, any time in 2016, I think, is a perfect time for this book to come out. As you said, we're celebrating the 50th. And what better way to do it with such a unique story mm. as, you know, a continuation is from history's shadow and really kind of getting back to that 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 whole vibe of where Star Trek started. Definitely. And, you know, examining the history of this show we love, uh, what better way to bring in the 50th anniversary to look at some of its past. Yeah, definitely. Before we go, we'd like to tell everybody about audible.com, which is the premier source for audiobooks with more than 150,000 titles to choose from. And they have more titles that come each week. We've got classic bestsellers. You've got some of the most famous Star Trek books out there, of course, like Prime Directive, Federation, Spock's World. I mean, honestly, uh, Audible has something for everyone. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. So just give it a try today. Catch up on all those classic Star Trek books you've always wanted to read or that latest novel from your favorite author. Just go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today and we thank audible for supporting literary treks and the network well dan i'm super excited the fact that we have finally made it to the last book in the in the slings and arrows series uh, it's been so fun kind of getting uh through this series and kind of seeing the whole first year of the enterprise e which you know i remember when it came on screen in first contact like my little geek heart grew five sizes <laughs> um and so really put the the Grinch to shame there, um, but I I just wanted to know more about the ship, and of course we got Ship of the Line by Diane Carey, but this whole series was the entire first year of of kind of chronicling what the crew of the Enterprise went through that first year on, on the ship, as well as kind of introducing us into some of those new characters that we got, like you know Lieutenant Hawk and and people like that that we saw in the film, prominently featured in the film. But we really didn't know who they were. Mm-hmm. Uh, so this book series got a, gave us that chance to get to know them. Definitely. Uh, like Jordy says in, in First Contact, you know, we've been in space for nearly a year now. And, you know, every Trekkie immediately goes, oh, what happened during that year? Like, I want to see that. I want to see them getting their new ship. I want to see the, you know, what's different between this and the Enterprise D, the the new crew and that sort of thing. And, and like you said, characters like lieutenant hawk you know i i loved neil mcdonough in first contact and even though he's on screen for such a short time you know i really liked his character and wanted to know more about him and this series really does that and really delves into the depths of the minutiae of things that trekkies love (laughs) well what was great is that fortuitously through the profits i think it was is i happened to be on the trek bbs boards we were talking about this series somehow and keith the candidate comes on it's like you're talking about that series i want to talk about it (laughs) and i had something to do with it have me on and i was like well come on man so that's who we've got here guys we 
listeners, we have Keith the Candido with us tonight. Keith, welcome back to the show. Thank you. Good to be here. Awesome. Glad yeah, to have man. you, Keith. Um, I, I, gosh, I, I, it's it's uh, it's frustrating because you know we we got your nonfiction Klingon book last year, the the Klingon Art of War, yes. and unfortunately, it seems like that's the only way we're getting you right now for the um, moment. So yeah. I, yeah, I'm glad to have you back anytime you want to talk one of your old books we've covered because um, we miss you writing Star Trek books. We just wanted you to know that. You're here. I appreciate that. Okay, so Slings and Arrows. Yes. Talk about just kind of the genesis behind that series and, and what you guys were thinking when you were putting that all together. Well, actually, it started out life as um, a comic book pitch. Oh, I had... Nice. Um, I was originally pitching, I originally came up with it uh, to pitch to Wildstorm back when they uh, had the comics license. The, uh, the idea was it would be a one-year series that would run uh, throughout the 12 calendar months of 2001, which was the 35th anniversary of Star Trek. Um, and, it was, and the original title was Enterprise Year One. The idea was it would chronicle the, that first year of the enterprise's existence. Um, like, like you guys just said, you know, it's like, we've been in service for a year. It's like, okay, so what happened? Um, especially <laughs> since in that year um, on, on deep space nine, we got to see so many odd things happening, raring from, you know, continued trouble with the Maquis, the Klingons that left the Kittimer Accords. You had constant uh, worry about changeling infiltration. Um, Plus, on a smaller scale, you had Data dealing with his ocean ship. You had, um, which he had gotten in Generations, and it's like, you know, he seemed to have it under control more in First Contact, and there should have been a journey in there somewhere. Um, and LaForge, after all those years, finally decided to switch to the bionic implants. And also, something else we saw in Deep Space Nine was that Waxana Troy got pregnant. Um, and, gee, maybe her daughter might have something to say about that. So, you know, there, there was all this stuff. And it just seemed rife for storytelling possibilities. The original pitch had a few other things that didn't make it into Slings and Arrows. Um, one of the things I wanted to include was crossovers with both the original series uh, and Voyager, as well as Next Generation. Um, the, the, the particular issue that would involve uh, Voyager, actually, I wound up repurposing for my Voyager short story, Letting Go, that appeared in Distant Shores, which was... Um, the idea of, of, of the survivors, the people left behind by Voyager when they fell down the rabbit hole, having a, an annual sort of get-together uh, to wonder what happened to their loved ones on Voyager. And uh, like I said, I repurposed it for that. And I also had a, one part of the story that involved uh, Spock and McCoy and Scotty as well. But um, the, the comic book series did not happen because Wildstorm did not pick up the license. The license expired at the beginning of 2001, and they decided not to renew it. So the concept just sort of bounced around for a while. Um, I was I was the editor in charge of the monthly Star Trek ebook line, which started in 2000 with the Starfleet Corps of Engineers series. And w it was decided, me and uh, Scott Shannon, who was the publisher at the time, and John Ordover, who was one of the Star Trek editors at the time, the three of us thought it would be a neat idea to diversify the monthly ebook line somewhat. Um, instead of doing 12... SCE books per year, we were going to, first of all, rebrand uh, SCE as Corps of Engineers because we all realized that nobody actually knew what SCE stood for. <laughs> and, uh, 
And also, in addition to the rebranding, we wanted to do only, there would be six Corps of Engineers stories per year and six of something else. Uh, branch out a little bit and do some things. And then, of course, you know, we did that for two years and then they um, went and killed the ebook line on us. But, <laughs> which happened only. And now it's back. Yeah. Uh, but the, well, well, even but the, the actual, the idea of doing a series of monthly ebooks was uh, killed from higher up than Scott's pay grade. That was, that was somebody uh, above Scott who, again, is no longer there, but he was, he was, the, he was the publisher in charge of the Star Trek line, among other things, uh, up until about, I don't know, 2010 or so. And, um, no, earlier now, it was 2008, 2000, I don't remember. The years all start to blend. Anyway, they, um, uh, but uh, Scott, Scott, John, and I thought it would be good to, to break things up and do a bunch of other different things, like the Corps of Engineers that could be, you know, different types of, of stories that we could tell. Uh, the first two thoughts we had, you know, in 2006, we had the 40th anniversary of the original series, and we did Mirror Anarchy. And then 2007 was the 20th anniversary of Next Generation, and I dug out the Enterprise Year One pitch, and which I toyed with the idea of pitching as an, a short story anthology at one point also. And I decided, no, this would work this way. You know, uh, I, I streamlined the stories a bit, and um, as, as with Mirror Anarchy, where it was um, six novellas covering you know, the, the broad history of, of the original series, this would be a little more focused in doing that one year of, of what the Enterprise was doing at the time. So I wanted to do, you know, the Enterprise dealing with the Changeling infiltration, the, what the Enterprise was doing when Admiral Layton declared martial law, um, Loxana dealing with uh, this this new sibling that, that uh, showed up, um, why LaForge made the decision to switch over to the bionic implants. Um, that actually was something that I've been thinking about for, for quite some time, the thing with LaForge, which which William Leisner wound up doing in The Insolence of Office al alongside the Troy story, which was, you know, LaForge, twice LaForge's visor had been used against him in the mind's eye on the, during Next Generation and, um, and in Star Trek Generations, where basically his visor was used to blow up the ship for all intents and purposes. Uh, and a Starfleet that is racked with Dominion paranoia is not going to want him to keep wearing it. And I thought that would be, you know, one of the interesting consequences of the suddenly security conscious Federation that we saw in Deep Space Nine, uh, especially in light of, of the whole thing with Admiral Layton. So I thought, you know, we could make a story out of that. So we did. Um, and uh, and all the various and sundry other things. I also thought that, that there should have been at some point once, you know, between when the Martok Changeling was uh, revealed in Apocalypse Rising and when Gowron finally re-entered the Kittimer Accords, there should have been some, I, there obviously had to have been some kind of diplomatic attempts. And that's something that Picard could have been in on because he has history with Gowron. He was the one who was his arbiter of succession and did aid him uh to some extent during the Klingon Civil War. So, you know, the, and, and I got to tie in some of the presidential politics that we had actually already started developing in the A Time To series and in Articles of the Federation and whatnot. Um, the, the, the stuff that me and Dave Mack and some others did to develop the history of the, um, the Federation presidency during the 24th century and build on that a little bit and show that, you know, because the, the way the timing worked, we had already established that Min Zeif was elected president right after Jarishinyo after the martial law was declared. So, hey, new presidential administration. This can be the excuse for a lot of the things we saw, including the attempts to get 
back together with the Klingons, the new uniforms for that matter, which I decided, what the heck, let's make that a presidential mandate, and uh, and so on. So uh, yeah, He doesn't really like Riker lifting his leg in spandex. He just doesn't <laughs> like that. Yeah, except for all the ladies on the Enterprise. Well, yeah, true. But yeah, but he was starting to get old, and it was harder for him to lift it anyway. That's so true. <laughs> Oh, it was just a good excuse for Riker. Riker actually just put in the suggestion, and they went, oh, we can go with this. <laughs> I, t- I took the last one, which was basically self-indulgence on my part. I wanted I wanted to write a straight-up next-gen Deep Space Nine crossover. So, so I did. Well, yeah, let's talk about that. You know, you you get the opportunity. You're the one kind of in charge. You <laughs> pitched everything. You've given the uh, the stories to the um, to the right authors, I take it. You know, you're pretty happy with where the... the they came. Yeah. Yeah. They're all, I mean, everybody on both mirror anarchy and um, slings and arrows, I specifically chose the writers for the, the things they didn't quit in, in particular. Um, you know, I'd worked with um, all of them on uh, actually everybody who worked on slings and arrows had done uh, core of engineer stories for me as well. And I thought they were all well suited to the stories they were telling. Um, they'd all, uh, the Yorks did two particularly strong stories that I, that I always enjoyed, and I thought they would handle it well. Um, you know, Phaedra Weldon also did, did, I think, two or three different Corps of Engineers stories. Bill, Bill, bless his heart. Poor Bill Eisner got, got dumped with um, a major story change during Corps of Engineers where um, it, we decided to make Dr. Lenz pregnant in uh, ebook number 55 and, and by decided I mean Elsa basically stuck it in at the end of the story without telling me and then uh, my first thought was crap we can't do this this wasn't in the proposal this wasn't what we planned and then I thought about it and realized hey there's all sorts of possibilities here the problem was Bill had already turned in the one after it which had lens in it very strong so I, I, I email him and say Bill don't kill me you have to rewrite this <laughs> And here's why. And it wound up, I mean, it wound up working out great because Bill's story was 800 times more poignant with Lens just learning she was pregnant as part of it. But we didn't know that at the time. But Bill was a trooper. And abs- I mean, he could have, you know, started poking little pins in his Keith voodoo doll uh, <laughs> after that. But he didn't. And uh, it was, he really came through for me on that one. And I was always grateful to him. And then, you know, Bob Greenberger, of course, you know, has been, he actually really wanted to do the, the Maquis story in particular, because he thought that was underdeveloped. And he, uh, Bob really enjoyed doing, speaking of Riker, he, he the, the Riker dynamic, he was the one, Bob was also the one who wrote the um, two parts of the A Time 2 series that dealt with Kyle Riker. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that was that was part of why I thought he was the right person to tackle, you know, Riker dealing with the ramifications of, of his twin joining the Maquis. So I gave him. Yeah, we just talked about that not too long ago, and that was a great story because there was there was so much packed into you know just this very small page count, Mm -hmm. but there was tons of great themes happening in that storyline. I really really liked that. Mm -hmm. Bob did a great job. And uh, Terry Osborne also I had worked with on Corps of Engineers, and um, in particular she wanted to play around with um, with uh, Crusher's theater background, Uh, since Terry also has a background in theater. So that was. uh, uh, that was something she wanted to do, uh, and and we wanted to throw the the Crusher dealing with the EMH was just something we 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 th- th- there was that one line in First Contact where she said I throw I'd never de- I'd never use one of these things so we wanted to give her more of a reason for it. So for you, you know, you want to do this straight up Deep Space Nine TNG crossover 
where did you, your story idea come from um, and kind of putting together these two things? Because it's something that we're always cognizant in the back of our minds that the Enterprise is still out there while Deep Space Nine is going on. But of course, you know, now that they're in the films, there's no way almost ever that they're really ever going to be referenced or we're ever going to see them. Uh, so the books are really the only place that that can happen. Um, yeah, where did you come up with with your idea, and what were you thinking when you were putting it together? Well, I mean, it was referenced occasionally, especially with Worf right there on the station. But um, and there were references here and there to the Borg invasion from from First Contact. Plus, of course, you know the new uniforms, but um, and the Defiant in First Contact. But the the uh, there were a lot of things. Like I said, it was a lot of it was the thought that. Um, because it's fiction, we're not constrained by actor availability or scheduling or anything like that. So it is, there's no reason why we can't have that crossover. We don't have to worry about, you know, there's no way the producers of Deep Space Nine would be able to get everybody together. Um, in fact, I, I only found this out recently. They, they actually tried to get some of the Enterprise crew to make a cameo in You Are Cordially Invited. Oh. Um, to be there for Worf and Dax's wedding, but only Jonathan Frakes and LeVar Burton were the only ones who were even available, and they, it, it was an all-or-nothing thing. They wanted to have everybody there or nobody there, and so um, uh, it's the same sort of thing. You don't have to work out; <laughs> you have to work out the schedules of Sir Patrick Stewart and Jonathan Frakes and Brent Spiner, and you know, <laughs> um, you, you can you can you know get just who you uh, you can get anybody you want. Um, and some of my favorite parts of Emissary were the scenes with Cisco and Picard. Mm, definitely. Uh, those were some, that was some great stuff. And we never got to see the two of them together again. And in the conflict with the Klingons, we had the perfect thing because both Cisco and Picard have history with Garon. So um, it, it's something that fits. Um, and it was fun watching, you know, watching O'Brien and Worf get to interact with both crews at the same time. Um, you know, uh, we, we also, we did that also in, um, in book two as well, but, and it was the same thing, um, that, uh, Phaedra got to have, you know, the Enterprise basically, you know, uh, dock at Deep Space Nine for, and there was, again, no reason not to, we don't have to worry about that sort of, the, the actor availability there, so let's go for it. Um, so that was, that was a big part of it as well, and, um, and so I just I just wanted to pair everybody up and 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 one of my absolute favorite scenes to write was um, Worf, O'Brien, Data, Nog, uh, and Dax all going through the recording, just just having you know that meeting of the minds there with from both crews uh, getting together. It's like a dream team. Yeah. <laughs> you know, Data's brain, Nog's ears. You know, <laughs> Worf's, Worf's paranoia and Dax's uh, scientific skills all. <clears throat> yeah. Well, speaking of uh, Cisco and Picard, um, the two of them together have kind of this dark history playing off each other. So what was it like kind of writing those two together? There's, it seems like there's so much to mine there. Oh, yeah. Um, it was especially fun writing the really, really awkward briefing scene at the beginning. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, and that, that, that was, that's the biggest problem. These are two guys who have a shared history that is horrible for both of them. You know, I mean... It, you know, we think, you know, Cisco lost his life, lost his wife in in that battle, and it was also, you know, one of the three or four worst experiences of Jean Luc Picard's life. Um, I have to say three or four because you know he was also tortured and you know all the other stuff. But um, busy life he's had. But um, you know, it's it's something that that and and each seeing the other is a, is a regular reminder of it. 
Um, so what better thing to do than, than shove them in a runabout for several hours and, and force them to have to talk to each other about things. And they've got, God knows they've got things in common, you know, I mean, besides the obvious of Worf and O'Brien, uh, having served under both of them, you've also got, you know, Q, um, and the whole thing was worth it just to write the scene where Cisco explains that he decked Q. Um, that was awesome. Yeah. Yeah. I loved that. That was great. <laughs> That's still one of my favorite scenes in all of Star Trek, you know, you know push. But, um, and, and, and there was actually one line there where I actually had, had Cisco totally channeling a line Hawk had in one of the Spencer Fryer episodes. But, um, but yeah, the, having them work through that and then, you know, be put in a situation where they have to work together because you know, the runabout crashes and all the rest of it. And basically giving them a chance to see each other as fellow captains rather than you're the guy who reminds me of my trauma. You know, and give them a chance to actually work through that. Um, just through through the through the act of, of experiencing each other, and I, and I deliberately didn't want you know a perfect hearts and flowers resolution, but at the very least, it got to the point where they could get past it and actually treat each other as people rather than as symbols of of yuckiness. Mm-hmm. So. Well, and what was great is that you you gave them some some really good moments together where you knew uh, it's never going to probably be perfect between them. But they've come to a much different place by the end. And I really liked the scene where, you know, uh, Picard says, you can call me Jean-Luc. And Ben says, you can call me Captain Sisko. <laughs> or Ben. Yeah. And yeah. Picard cracks a smile. And, and, like, you're watching kind of them melt away the tension between them. And I really, really liked that because these are two guys. I think they kind of get set up um, opposite each other by a lot of fans as being completely different types of captains mm-hmm. and yet they have a lot of similarities to them and uh, I think more than anything they have something very much in common which is their strength mm-hmm. and uh, I, I think that's a really nice thing to see in play here that they're becoming aware of the other's strengths instead of their darkness that they've been through together and that was just awesome thank you Thank you. That was that was sort of what I was going for there, you know. And and I also wanted to, just a minor thing was explain why Worf was all by himself on the Defiant without the rest of the DS9 crew mm-hmm. in first contact. Besides the obvious, the other again, the other actors weren't available, so I wanted to come up with a, with a story excuse for it, um, which which was handily actually given to me by um, um, the Dias cast when um, when Cisco basically disobeys orders in order to go to the Gamma Quadrant and rescue Odo. And I could see an admiral saying, okay, they already did this once. We're not letting him do it again. Um, you know. <laughs> Little did they know Picard would be the one to do it this time. <laughs> right, right. And, and, but, the, but also, but in the movie itself, they, the reasons they gave for Picard not joining the fleet would e- at, apply as equally to Cisco. You know, mm-hmm. that's why I put that particular phrase into Admiral Hayes' mouth. That basically, we don't want, you know, the Defiant is basically a big gun, you know, and, um, They'd rather the person in command if it wasn't the guy who lost his wife to the board. And also, you know, it gave me a chance to show how how Cisco had come along um, in that he, you know, he's, if not mellowed necessarily, at the very least, uh, gotten to the point where he's not as, as he's not so obsessed that he needs to, uh, to, be, to be part of the missioning there. So, I mean, this is the same Cisco who, at roughly the same point, uh, right before he went through what happened in rapture but you know yeah i loved that that this story too it takes place before that and you know when they had the conversation about uh cisco being the emissary yeah. it was interesting that it's happening before this kind of 
big momentous occasion in his life <laughs> where the whole arc of the emissary changes for him. Yeah. Like he, he becomes much more, not only am I the emissary, but I, I really believe this stuff. It's, it's yeah. not just me playing along anymore. So that was kind of nice because I, I felt like you just, when they were talking about him being the emissary, you kind of nailed where Cisco was at that point. And then of course we're about to watch him completely do a 180 by right. the time we get through the end of <laughs> Rapture. <laughs> For you, um, with with you know, we have the movie and the show, and so much happens on Deep Space Nine. And once we get to Insurrection, there are some minor mentions of things that have happened but a majority of it gets lost in michael pillar's earlier drafts of the script Mm. uh so that the deep space nine and the dominion war that's been happening really play a very uh, there's like two lines in the movie uh, about the you know ketracel white and what the sona had been manufacturing so i think that's the only thing which is a little bit sad there's one or two Um, other references but yeah a lot of it there's a lot of it yeah. yeah What was it about the series that, too, gave you that opportunity to uh, really tie all of this together more so that we don't feel like, what is the Enterprise doing during all of this stuff? Because this is an important ship. they got to be doing something. That was was part of why, um, I honestly, it wasn't just there that I, that I, that, that, I and others dealt with that. I mean, I also wanted to do that in the Tales of the Dominion War anthology in 2004, which was which had um, two stories that showed uh, what the Enterprise was doing. One was uh, Dave Gallanter's uh, 11 Hours Out and um, Mirror Eyes by Heather Jarman and Jeff Lang. Both had the Enterprise dealing with stuff during the war. Uh, both Jeff Trowbridge and I wrote stories that involved what the Enterprise was doing during the war in the Sky's the Limit anthology in 07. Um, in fact, I, I put the Enterprise right at the center of the the battle at Richter Prime, which was established uh, in one particular episode. Um, it was established in a field of fire, is where the Grissom was lost, and um, and you know just a bunch of other things. You know, again, novels can do that. You know, I mean, the main the, the main reason for not involving the Enterprise was because that was Deep Space Nine's thing. It was you know difficult to work it in, and you know from the point point of view of writing insurrection i understand why they didn't want to tie it too closely to an existing tv series the, the movie needs to some extent to be able to stand on its own and the, the movie wasn't really about the war as such um you know you can see the background element there particularly in terms of the compromises starfleet is willing to make uh which makes sense given them being on a war footing at that point um it puts admiral Doherty's attitudes uh into perspective but it isn't it it's you don't want to tie it too closely to an you know and i and i get that um you know it makes perfect sense the one thing from insurrection that that, that in particular uh, affected slings and arrows was just in the same way we wanted to develop the character of of sean hawk a little bit more um because you know aside uh, you know get, fill in some of his backstory but also um bringing in the character of Daniels who was in first contact, but not identified and was identified more, more specifically as the security chief on the enterprise insurrection and to give him a bit of a background as well. Um, it's, it's funny because one of the, re- another reason why I wanted to do the story was so few people had actually really dealt with that time period. Every, almost every enterprise East story we'd seen took place after first contact, partly because the instinct is to move forward. You know, the, mm-hmm. the people want to know what happens 
after what they just saw. So after First Contact came out, most of the stories people wanted to tell were after because they wanted to be able to use First Contact as part of their experiences. The, the side, and it's telling that one of the few that didn't was one that was uh, was the Section 31 novel Rogue by Andy Mangles and Mike Martin, which was very specifically designed to be the story of Sean Hawk. Mm. So that one, because that one was specifically designed for that, it's, one, it's the only novel length story that takes place during that first year. Um, well, aside from Ship of the Line, and that's really, that's more of a prequel to, the, to that year. Um, so, yeah. Um, it, but, you know, the prose gives us a freedom, like I said, to do stuff that you, you the, the limits, the budgetary limits and the physical actor availability limits of television don't have. Um, we can team up Picard and Cisco. We can, you know, show these characters interacting that we wouldn't get to see interacting otherwise. So let's have fun with it you know we have an unlimited budget let's use it <laughs> <laughs> definitely well like you said uh one of the benefits of having this take place before first contact is and and like we've talked about a little bit is you can lead right directly into first contact right at the end and like i thought that was that was kind of brilliant we we talked about kind of benching Cisco and I have to admit that was kind of something that I'd never really thought of because when you watch First Contact you think oh how are they going to get Worf in oh the Defiant of course but well yeah and yeah. the Defiant was built to fight the Borg you know I mean <laughs> well exactly but then like you did you kind of dig a little deeper into it and you think well wait a minute why wasn't Cisco you know leading the charge to defend his home world I mean right and I thought that was kind of brilliant to kind of bring those two characters together uh, under the same kind of unfairness of Admiral Hayes in his command decisions there. Um, what kind of, what kind of led to that, uh, bringing those two ideas together in both Picard and Cisco? Uh, like I said, I was just, I was looking, it was, it was a case where one of the things tie-in writers have to do is come up with reasons why stuff happened in universe as opposed when, the extra universe reason is the actor wasn't available or we couldn't fit that in or it didn't work in the budget or whatever. Um, and so I was just thinking, okay, well, what, what would be the reason? And um, the, 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 like I said, the die is cast where, where provided a perfect opportunity in that, you know, there, there's a history there of, of Cisco disobeying orders to help his friends. And there's a history of the crew going along with him while they, while he does it. Right. So that's that that was the excuse to keep keep the rest of the crew away and Worf gets a pass cuz he's actually faced the Borg before. Um which, you know, was a lame excuse as these things go, but you know, there has to be some explanation cuz we've already got it there. So I would just I would just and and it's a sort of reasoning that a bureaucrat would make. <laughs> you know. <laughs> Uh, and and it and it and like you said, I I honestly I hadn't even thought of it in this regard, but um it does also help in the tying of Cisco and Picard more closely together, you know, uh, which is kind of, was kind of the theme of the, of, of book six, which was to, to, you know, show both how, how different they are and how alike they are at the same time. That's definitely something too, that, I mean, I really would love to see more of even in the current uh, timeline. It's just now that we have, you know, Cisco back and Picard around. I would love to see them get a chance to work together again because, I, especially taking into account this experience and yeah. now all that they've been through. I mean, 
Picard's a father at this point in his life. Ben is a father again at this point in his life. I mean, you know, Ben is an old is old, but I mean, they're still older guys. They're both got young kids, and right. um, I just think they have so much more in common now. Uh, it's it'd be really great to have that. So yeah, that's that was my favorite part of the story, just watching those two guys kind of come together in uh, a kind of strange buddy cop. You know, way it was awesome because they they started doing that whole snarky thing back and forth, and it was good. It was really good. We just needed uh, Cisco or Picard to say, "I'm getting too old for this bleep." On the yeah, way, that's West, exactly the what crashing. I needed Picard to say. <laughs> getting too old for this. <laughs> oh God, it would be awesome. Um, well, and and there was I, actually there was a point where I I kind of felt like Picard was almost thinking that when he's got his phaser, you know, and he's like, man, we don't I I don't like this going in with you know guns blazing kind of thing. It's mm-hmm. just not my style. Whereas we kind of think of that being more uh, Cisco's style, but yeah, that was good. Um, that that actually well, specifically in- one of my favorite lines in Insurrection uh, was that one moment as they're entering the turbo lift and Picard just says. Do you remember when we used to be explorers and just the really sad way he delivered that line? That always stood out to me. I mean, I'm, I'm not the biggest fan of Insurrection as a movie, but it had its moments and that was one of them. Um, and, and just, the, the, I played that up even more in, in, in um, uh, Four Lights, the, uh, the Sky's the Limit story I did where that involved uh, the Enterprise in, in the heart of the Dominion War. And just, just the idea that, um, you know what, what what war takes away from a society um and in particular you know the fact that, that starfleet's mission of necessity has to become more militaristic than it normally is under these circumstances and for picard that would suck because <laughs> i mean he's somebody i mean he's somebody who can fight and will fight if needs be i mean this is a guy who held off two klingon assassins trying to kill him once um but he's that's that's not what he signed up for um even even more so than others um you know his 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 passion is archaeology his passion is exploration and uh he would view it as just a tragedy for for to be in this situation and i wanted to play that up a little bit more too in, in this i mean he, he still accepts it and he still does it you know he does beam down you know when they do when they, when they do head out it's with guns guns a blazing as you said but uh but he's not gonna like it <laughs> well that's actually kind of one thing that i felt this series as a whole did really well was kind of bring picard and the next generation crew back to that television series mentality a bit pulling him back from the the movie picard and more towards the series picard and the series crew which i i really enjoyed um even just little things like Beverly uh, starting her theater company back up again. It just really gave it those TNG series flavors that I loved. Yeah, the problem with the movies is, and, and I, I, I've had this problem all along going back, honestly, to 1979. Star Trek isn't really a movie franchise to my mind. It's a TV franchise. It's one that, that is about characters. And big budget science fiction movies in in the post star wars era um have to be about big spectacles and 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 big major things happening and and stuff and explosions and action scenes and and it doesn't leave room for the kind of character development that's really star trek's bread and butter and you know as a result you get you know particularly with the next gen movies because i mean at least the original series was always pretty much well originally a two-person thing and then 
DeForest Kelly kind of forced himself into part of the Troika by the power of his own awesomeness. But um, <laughs> the the original series was basically the big three, um, always, uh, because of the difference between 60s television and, and 80s television. But Next Gen was always an ensemble piece, but the movies were basically the Picard and Data show. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it was focused on, you know, the big, you know, action stuff. First Contact maintained a better balance than Generations or Insurrection or Nemesis did, but even so, it basically boiled down to mostly those two and didn't give room for the kind of, of character development that, that Star Trek really needs to be at its best. Um, but, you know, First Contact managed it to some extent because because of the the it developed the connection Picard had with the Borg. Um, but even so, it it you don't get to do that sort of ensemble story that we could do, you know, you know, with things like you know Beverly's theater background. There's no room for that in that in a two hour movie. That you know, when, especially when you're only doing, and you're only doing one two hour movie every two or three years. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, that was part of what we were going for was to give give the Enterprise you know its own season of the show, so to speak. You know where they had their adventures and you know flesh out the supporting cast a little bit. You know we had, you know not only um, uh, Daniels and Hawk but also uh, Paul Porter who was established as Jordy's deputy mm-hmm. chief engineer yeah. in, in First Contact. We give him a little bit of a, you know Phaedra in particular developed him pretty well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, stuff like that. What turned out, uh, you know, looking back over the entire series, what turned out to be some of your favorite moments from you know the different books throughout the six part series? Um. I liked the whole sequence on Starbase 375 uh, in book two, I thought worked really well. Um, uh, in book one, I liked, I really liked the confrontation, the, the, the verbal confrontation between Picard and the changeling in the meeting room. I thought uh, Steve and Christina did a really nice job with that one. Um, uh, just the very concept of um, uh in, in both books four and five, it was just it was a more general thing of just just the whole setup there, you know, of of getting in Riker's head while while dealing with the Maquis and all the feelings he had there, and um, and just the general concept of of Beverly putting on a uh, a Christmas Carol, which I just love the idea of. Um, the entire sequence on Beta Z when from when Loxana went into labor in book in book three all the way to when the kid was born, and uh, and then Odo showing up, I loved. I especially liked. Uh, I thought Bill just nailed Odo's voice there and having Odo and, and and Deanna just sort of sitting there in the living room, having a slightly awkward, but ultimately pretty cool conversation on the subject of, of Loxana. And like I said, in book six, my favorite moment was, was, was writing the scene in ops where they, where they dissect the recording. And also I got to write core again. I love writing core. I could write core forever. I, you know, uh, it was the reason, I mean, the reason why I've done, so much Klingon fiction over the years is because from a very young age, I was truly overwhelmed by the the amazingness of both John Colicos's core and Michael Ansara as Kang. And either of those two guys, I could write endlessly. That's why, you know, when I did the Alien Spotlight Klingons, it was all Kang. And um, writing core in here and in Art of the Impossible and a couple other places and, and in the Unhappy Ones, it was just, he's such a fun character to write. Um, he's got such a distinctive voice that John Colicos gave him, and um, and getting to write him talking with with uh, the scene of him talking with uh, Worf and Dax was also just tremendous fun. Um, I also uh, I also really enjoyed just for the the entertainment value be, uh, was writing the uh, 
which was basically a gossip scene between Picard and O'Brien. Uh, yeah, that was really side. fun. You know, uh, especially really with O'Brien fun. trying to explain uh, Kira's pregnancy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, well, there was a mishap. Yeah. And she's carrying my baby. Yeah. It's it's not awkward. Um, I rub her thighs. I help her out of the tub. I don't peek. Um, so yeah, it's not weird. There's just that uh, one episode. Yeah, that was... It got a bit weird, but yeah, it we fin- it finally does get weird. Yeah, it definitely <laughs> gets weird. And I have to address what I think was the biggest failing in Deep Space Nine's entire history, which was they had Worf on the station. He should have been the one to deliver Kiryoshi too. This was like he's there. That was that was really funny as well. I felt like that whole scene just had me cracking up the thought of Worf having to deliver another O'Brien baby, but this time. No, no, not coming out of Keiko, coming out of Kira. Yeah. Talk about yeah. awkward. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Well, for you, okay, any hope that um, you were going to be writing any Star Trek books? I, not up to me. I, um, okay. There are, uh, there's nothing, I mean, not at the moment. That's really all I can say for the, for the time being. Okay. Um, uh, yeah. I, I hope springs eternal, um, but uh, I'm not the one who makes that decision. Um, I had a great time writing the Klingon Art of War. Um, that was uh that was true that was that was that was a fun thing to to revisit and it was a real challenge because it it i i joke when i tell people about it that it's you know it's a guide to how to live your life as a proper warrior and and then i joke that it's, it was my first <laughs> self-help book um but it really kind of was it was uh it, it was it, it, I, i've never written in that style before and it, and it really came you know mm-hmm. it's basically a non-fiction book even though it's in a fictional universe plus i had to write like a klingon for most of the book uh which is exhausting frankly <laughs> and uh one of the reasons why i did the afterward that i did which was the the search for the historical calus uh as one of the appendices well I, there were several reasons why i did that but the primary one was so i could write in a human voice again <laughs> you know yeah but yeah, uh, but really no cool. I'd, I'd i'd love to do more and and you know anything is possible uh there's nothing i can talk about right now uh but the 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 like I said, hope springs eternal. So we'll see. Well, outside of uh, Star Trek, uh, what do you kind of have on the horizon coming up um, in other projects going on? Uh, I've got right now. I'm actually uh, well, not right now because I'm talking to you. But um, <laughs> generally, right now, I'm working on a Stargate SG One novel uh, called Kali's Wrath, which is a late fifth season Stargate SG One adventure that Fandemonium will be publishing later this year. Oh, very cool. Yeah, uh, I've got another Stargate project that we're still waiting. It's a, it's a collaborative project that I'm working on with two other authors. Um, we're still waiting for MGM's approval on it before we can announce it. We're hoping to be able to start talking about it soon. Um, and I've got a couple other projects that I can't actually talk about yet, but will be really cool when they happen. Uh, more immediately, I've got a couple of short stories coming out. Um, IDW is putting out an X-Files anthology. Um, called the first one's going to be called Trust No One. They're actually doing three anthologies altogether, uh, and I've got a story in the first one, uh, which is called ba- Back in El Paso, My Life Will Be Worthless, which is a late second season X Files story uh, involving a uh, a weird serial killer, and um, and I'm also uh, doing another story for uh, the Shared World Anthology View Wars, which is edited by Jonathan Mayberry, also published by IDW. Um, I had a story in the first View Wars anthology and the third anthology is coming out later this year. It's called Night Terrors. Uh, and I got a story called Streets of Fire in there. 
uh, I wrote, I did the script adaptation of a novel called Icarus, which was by Gregory A. Wilson. Uh, that's going to be published by Silence in the Library, hopefully later this year as a graphic novel. Um, and what else? There's probably some other stuff too. I can't keep track. <laughs> oh, and at some point I do really need to actually um, write uh, Mermaid Precinct, which is the fifth uh, book in my series of fantasy police procedurals, uh, which is kind of Law and Order meets Lord of the Rings. Um, uh, it's it's a fantasy setting, but the main characters are detectives who solve crimes in this world filled with humans, dwarves, elves, wizards, and such. Uh, I've had four novels and a short story collection out, uh, starting with Dragon Precinct uh, and working through a bunch of others. Mermaid Precinct, hopefully I will get out this year. Um, I've also got a short story collection coming out uh, this spring called Without a License, The Fantastic Worlds of Keith Barry DeCandido, which is a collection of all my short stories that are not media tie-ins, which is why it's called Without a License. <laughs> <laughs> uh, this is called Using Bad Puns to Work for You. Um, the uh, But it's got a collection of 11 uh, short stories. Some of them are news. So a lot of them are reprints of stories I've written over the years. and um, And I've also got a one, uh, another original series of, of uh, short stories I've been doing taking place in Key West, Florida, which are um, urban fantasy stories involving Norse gods, scuba diving, rock and roll music, uh, folklore, and beer drinking, not necessarily in that order, uh, featuring a young woman named Cassie Zukov. And uh, there's a, a collection of hers that came out in 2013. And there's a new Cassie story that will be published on and Bu Buzzy Mag online at the end of April. Uh, it's called Down to oh, the Waterline, and I'm uh, hoping that does well. Uh, it sounds really cool. <laughs> I think that's it. <laughs> oh, and of course, um, I've been doing a, uh, and this actually, I'm going to break this news here, because um, I haven't actually talked about it yet. I might break it here, whether depending on when uh, this goes live. Um, I'm just finishing up my Deep Space Nine rewatch for Tor.com. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. uh, in fact, I was in the middle of writing the write-up for What You Leave Behind when we started this, and I'm going to be finishing it. Uh, were, you, were you crying man tears? No. No. <laughs> okay. Sorry. Um, that's okay. I, I, I'd it seen it already. Gets, I knew what happened. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and also I had, well, I had issues with the episode too, which I'll, you'll see in the rewatch. It's on tour.com. Um, but uh, I've got that to finish. And then the seven season overview. And then I'm, uh, I've, I've done DS9. I've done next generation over the last 40 years. I am now going backwards and I'm going to be doing an original series rewatch for tour.com. Oh, excellent. Uh, which will be happening. Cool. That'll be weekly. Uh, Cause it's only, 79 episodes plus the cage plus actually more than 79 episodes because uh, one of the conditions under which I decided to do that was if they allowed me to also rewatch the animated series. Okay, so I'm going to be awesome. doing the original series and the animated series. Uh, and that'll be every Tuesday on tour.com. On Friday, Excellent. I'm actually going to be doing a Stargate seasonal rewatch. Okay, uh, I'm not, I'm not going to go episode by episode because that, you know, I'll be doing that forever. Um, but I'm going to be covering the original Stargate movie, and then each week I'll cover a season of the Stargate, the various Stargate TV shows, including all 10 seasons of SG-1, all five seasons of Atlantis, and both seasons of, of Universe, uh, as well as the two direct-to-DVD movies. So that's, you know, 18 weeks worth of stuff to keep me busy for a while. Um, and that's what I'm going to be doing on Tor.com following, uh, following Deep Space Nine. Are you avoiding the uh, Voyager and... Enterprise rewatches? Uh, I am. Uh, I don't know what Tor okay. has planned. Um, but 
Okay, I love Next Generation. I love Deep Space Nine. I love the original series. I do not love Voyager, and I do not love Enterprise. And uh, I, the idea of watching it twice a week for two years, well, less than that for Enterprise, but still, um, I, I just, I don't want to do it. Um, the rewatch, it, it's, it can be time-consuming, some more than others. Um, I mean, it got the write-up of uh, Far Beyond the Stars took forever, but I enjoyed that, so that was, you know. Um, but even so, it's 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 time-consuming, and the only way for it to work is for it to be fun, and doing Voyager would not be fun for me. Um, you know, there, there, there are probably selected episodes I would enjoy, but I mostly just didn't, I didn't like the show. Um, you know, I mean, I've enjoyed writing Voyager, the Voyager stories that I've done, although, and, and I think I've set a record at this point for, for number of Voyager stories written that don't take place in the Delta Quadrant. But uh, no, seriously, every, every Voyager story I've done has taken place in the Alpha Quadrant. I did, I did uh, Letting Go took place, involved the people left behind. Um, my Mirror Universe story took place, it had one scene in the Delta Quadrant, but everything else was in the Alpha Quadrant. Um, and then The Brave and the Bold took place before Caretaker, so it was before they had gone through the, uh, through the thing to the, the, fell down the rabbit hole, as it were. So, you know, and I'm trying to keep that going, actually. I want, I love to, like, you know, write, like, dozens more Voyager stories that don't take place in the Delta Quadrant, just to be perverse. But, um, uh, the, I just, I, that was, I mean, I, I don't know if, Tor.com is going to do one or not. Uh, that's that's up to the powers that be there. Um, probably, certainly not while I'm doing a Star you know, they don't want to do more than one. So at the very least, the next Star Trek thing they'll be doing will be the original series. Once I'm done with the original series and the animated series, then they'll they'll visit whether or not they want to do any of the other spinoffs. So, but that's, that's, that's a ways off. So. Where can everybody find you online so we make sure that they don't miss anything coming out from you? Uh, best bet is to, well, the, 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 the link dump for all the places to find me online is decandido.net, which I describe as my um, cheerfully retro website because it looks like it was designed in 1996. This is mostly because I designed it in 1996. Um, but it's basically just, uh, it, it links you to all, like, ordering my most recent books. There's links to my blog, uh, my Facebook page, my Twitter feed, um, the various podcasts I do, the rewatches on Twitter.com. Um, but if you, uh, uh, you follow me online, you can learn all this wonderful stuff. Uh, my blog is usually the thing that's up to date the most. Um, and, but if you go to decandido.net, that's where it all is. So you can find me there and please do order my most recent books. Um, because the more of them you buy, the more money I make and the more money, the more food I can eat and rent I can pay and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Keith, thank you so much for coming on to talk with us. It's always a blast to to have you on. And um, when we keep talking your older Star Trek books, we'll make sure to to invite you back because uh, until the powers that be uh, come to their senses and get more Keith in current Star Trek. Here, here. And uh, <laughs> well, we'll we'll keep hitting the drum by making sure we keep reviewing your older books. Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And thanks for having me on. I enjoyed, I, I, I hadn't thought about Slings and Arrows in a while. So this was kind of fun to, to just, you know, revisit that particular project. Uh, you know, uh, it was, it was something that I'd wanted to do for a long time and I was really glad to get the opportunity to do it. Um, and, uh, and it was, and it was, it was, it was a fun project and it was good fun to revisit it. So thank you for that. Well, it's always awesome to get the author's pers- and the editor's perspective on, on stuff. So thanks so much for, for joining us. <laughs> No problem. Thanks, guys. 
Well, Matthew, that was a really great talk with uh, Keith DeCandido about the Slings and Arrows series and all the other projects he has going on at the same time. It, it's incredible. I, I feel like he has, uh, you know, more stuff than you could possibly lift with even a trebuchet or something. It's just incredible what he has on the go. I was just thinking to myself, I, how do you keep straight all the storylines in your head? You know, what you're writing, what you're working on and... He must have an amazing system or a much better brain than I do. So that's probably the case. That's just probably what it is. Let's let's be honest. Well, I, I just um, I just imagine he's doing his Deep Space Nine rewatch and and you know typing it up and saying, well, in this scene, Jack O'Neill talks to Worf. Of, oh wait, no, wait, crap. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Well, it was great to have Keith on to talk about the last book in the Slings and Arrows series. But it's obviously not the only thing we've been talking about here on Traffic FM the past week. Here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network. Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. This episode isn't very good, but... (laughs) Are we just going to pin all of our (laughs) choices? You pretty much have to. But the thing about this episode, which we talked about a couple weeks ago, I think, is it's a crazy idea. Earl Grey. Picard, can you construct a, a rudimentary lathe? Go for its weak spot. It's an energy being. It doesn't have a vulnerable spot. <laughs> Get off the line, the forge. The orb. Or we could just blame it on Janeway somehow, you know, that she it's scared fault, the yeah. Borg into the Gamma Quadrant because they were tired of dealing with her in the Delta Quadrant. I don't know. To the journey! Because this is the dangers, by the way, kids, of having uh, babies in the 24th century. Because if Kathy's first word was coffee and she was standing next to the replicator, the next thing you know, you have a hyped up two-year-old. The ready room. Well, it's kind of like, you know, you've got your lucky shirt when you're watching a football game and your team won when you were wearing it. So now you have to wear it every time. That's also the Enterprise insignia. That's the insignia of the only ship whose crew didn't die. Yeah. So Just wear course. it on the right color shirt. That's all. That's right. Commentary, Trek stars. And then he turns to her and he says, who, who is that man that I was just hugging? And she says, that was William Shatner. And he's like, who? Literary Treks. Well, you know, I'm, I'm really a, a fan of a lot of, you know, different kinds of you know, naval fiction. Uh, you know, I, I, C.S. Forrester, Horatio Hornblower, those novels. So uh, good. Yeah, Patrick O'Brien, uh, you know, the, the Master and Commander books. Uh, you know, these are all things which sort of put me into the right mindset. The 602 Club. So when we come kind of to the story here, and especially off of doing literary treks where we talk about Michael Pillar's book, Fade In, kind of got behind the scenes of, of insurrection and really seeing how the that story changed. To me, it really just exemplified the importance of story in a movie. And that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So check out these shows and find out what we've been talking about in your favorite corner of the Star Trek universe and beyond. You'll find us wherever you get your podcasts. If you're an Apple user, be sure to hit that subscribe button. It helps us out greatly. really makes it easier for listeners to find us when they search in iTunes. Of course, reviews and star ratings also do that. So we greatly appreciate those. And if you give us one of those, make sure you give us a shout out uh, there on the Babel Conference or Twitter. We'd love to make sure that you get recognized here in the show. 
If you are not an Apple user, we've got you covered as well. You can find our shows on Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course you can stream and download the MP3 file from our website and grab the RSS link as well. Another way that you can help keep all of the shows coming to each week is become a patron of the network on Patreon. We are a listener-supported network, and without you, we really can't make this happen. So if you go to patreon.com, that's patreon.com slash trekfm, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash trekfm, you'll find all the current goals and then the milestone contribution levels we have for you. They come with some great perks. You've got early access to content, exclusive content, producer credits, seats on the content development team, and more. We really appreciate your support, guys. It means so much to us, and we hope that you'll join the team. You can find all the details at patreon.com slash trek.fm. If you'd like to contact us, you can do that at trek.fm slash contact. We'd love to have a voicemail from you. Look on the sidebar on the show page or go to speakpipe.com slash trek.fm. We are on Twitter at trek.fm. Facebook at facebook.com slash trek.fm. And we also have the listeners only discussion group. This is the best place to talk to the Star Trek fans here that listen to the network. We have great conversations there at the Babel conference. That's B-A-B-E-L. Just type that in the search field on Facebook or go to the website at trek.fm and click discussion on the menu bar. We've got some great associate producers here, and we'd like to thank them. First, Will Wynn, who's on Twitter at Will underscore Wynn, and of course you can find him in the Babel Conference. He's the associate producer for The Orb, Earl Grey, and Trek FM's content coordinator. So if you have any ideas for future shows, you can email him at will.win at trekfm, or you can send him a tweet. We'd like to thank Lisa Stevens for her support of the network and being an associate producer here on Literary Tracks. You can find her on Twitter at Flip18. And of course, we'd also like to thank Kenneth Tripp for his support of the network and being an associate producer on Literary Tracks as well. Before we go, make sure you check out Audible and that great Audible library. All those books for you to choose from. And as a Trek FM listener, you can get a free audiobook of your choice with a 30-day trial just to see how great Audible is. Go to audibletrial.com slash trekfm and sign up today. And we thank them for supporting Literary Treks and the network. Now, Dan, when you're not getting shot down by plasma storms with Picard and getting lost in the Badlands, where can we find you? Well, I tell you, those Badlands are dangerous. I should probably steer clear of those. Probably a good idea. (laughs) Well, Matthew, uh, you can find me on my website where I uh, review Star Trek novels, both new and old, and that's at www.treklit.com. I'm on Facebook, facebook.com slash treklitreviews, and I'm on Twitter at treklitreviews. And you can find me hanging around the Babel Conference, chatting people up and talking about what's new. And Matthew, when you're not assembling your dream team mix of Deep Space Nine and, and Next Generation officers to decode some secret signal somewhere, where can we find you? Oh, goodness, man. I, just, I keep like, no, but he would be great. No, he would be great. No, she would be great. I Just trying to put them all together. It's, it's just, oh, man, so time-consuming. But uh, when I'm not doing that, you can find me at MattRushing02 on Twitter. You can also find me doing The Orb with Christopher Jones, where we talk exclusively about Deep Space Nine. You can also find me doing The 602 Club. It's a great place to just talk about all the things geeky. And in fact, right now we're doing a special contest If you give us a review and a star rating on iTunes, on March 6th, our producer, Norman Lau, is going to pick one of the winners who has given us a review and a star rating. 
So I'm really excited. Not only will you um, get picked and you'll get recognized on the show, but you'll actually win an iTunes gift card for $15. So um, check it out. We'd love to have you um, listen to the show and give us a review and a star rating. Well, guys, thank you so much for joining us. And until next time, live long and read on. What do you call that light reading? To each his own, number one.